0: You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the Irish 14 show. That's critical, but not cynical. I'm Kean, and you find me after a week of being away, back here at the cabin in the woods, located as always somewhere in the southeast of Ireland. It is uh, mid to late summer, I suppose. Um, while the rest of Europe bakes in unearthly and th- worrying heat waves, um, we seem to have lost lost all of that once again, and we're back to I'm back to jumpers and long trousers here. As I sit in the cabin looking out at the forest around me, um, uh, you can picture me actually surrounded by um, artifacts connected to to cryptozoology because we are delving back into those waters again today. So up up on the walls here, I've got framed pictures of various icons of cryptozoology. I've got, of course, the Patterson Gimlin Bigfoot uh, frame 352, the famous picture of Patty the Bigfoot, everybody knows. I've got the Loch Ness Monster Surgeon's photo as well up here on the wall. I've got um, some slightly lesser-known ones, but old favourites nonetheless. The Mayaka Ape, um, from I think 2000, and the Ozid Kadnuk Tiger, uh, an Australian cryptid from uh, the mid 60s. Uh, blurry photos all around, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, and before me, I have my drink for the day. Now I've been in Dublin recently, which is um, not something I do a tremendous amount. Uh, I did have to raid various uh, bookshops, most uh, foremost among them, of course. Chapters, uh, well known, which has a well known um, secondhand section, has been a haunt of bibliophiles for many a year. Uh, and while I was up there, I got some session IPA called Hop On. This is from Hope Beer at Hoth Junction, up in Dublin, and um, it's going down, it's going down easy as as session beers, session ales are supposed to. So, I'm uh, cracking this can here. It's actually my second one, but uh, these these are low alcohol, so it's all fine. I'm, I'm introducing a new mini segment at the beginning of episodes, and I can't believe I didn't think of this yonks ago, but the, what am I reading? So not just what am I drinking, but what am I reading? My goodness, why didn't I think of this? So I'm reading They Found Atlantis by Dennis Wheatley from 1936, and it is not so far my famous my favorite Dennis Wheatley. It's... I'm about over 200 pages in and they haven't yet found Atlantis. So uh, Wheatley usually moves his plots along more efficiently than this. Um, hopefully we'll find Atlantis soon. Atlantis is on my mind because before I read this, I read Arthur Conan Doyle's 1927-1929 novel. His, his last novel in either, in either case, um, The Maracot Deep, which is also about Atlantis. It is utterly fascinating to check out Arthur Conan Doyle's take on this subject. Um, you know, a very much a Victorian, slightly beyond his his prime years, let's say in in the late twenties, and um, compared to Dennis Wheatley, who was a pulp master, a pulp meister extraordinaire, very much in control of his powers, um, in the mid thirties. Even if um, this book hasn't really heated up yet the way I want to, but yeah, so uh, I think I think I'll do this. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm reading. I've also been making my way through um online versions, which is not my favorite way to read, but I've I've been getting through um. Uh, Robert R. Chambers' volume In Search of the Unknown from 1904? Yes, 1904. Now Chambers, of course, is better known for The King in Yellow and his connections to the Cthulhu Mythos and, and True Detective, which is how I came across him back in 2014. Uh, this is different. This is cryptozoology related, and I'm sure the reasons for that will become obvious as soon as we get into the episode proper. Now, a few shout outs and thanks while I'm talking. And um, big, big thanks to David Roddy over at Worker's Cauldron podcast, which you should be listening to. Um, David has been sending me pictures of his visit to the actual Patterson-Gimlin site. I know this is something he's wanted to to do for a long time. He is in California, so it's a little more manageable for him than it would be for me. But still, not an easy place to find unless you're in the know. And uh, depending on the time of year and the snow and other conditions like that, um, apparently not an easy place to get to because I know he's tried several times and been thwarted. Um, but I have picture proof now. Uh, and very, very interesting to see what the site looks like today. So huge thanks to David and uh, do check out The Worker's Cauldron. He's a good, definitely a friend of the show. Um, I want to mention in conjunction with our 1999 Mummy movie episode that we did a little while ago um, somebody and I can't remember who huge apologies if it was you mentioned something very important when i was talking about the genesis of this story and the tone of it and and the the vibe of it and how it owed more to indiana jones movies and and a slightly lighter strain of adventure story than the original mummy which is after all a dark gothic romantic horror film and somebody pointed out is there any chance that it is more influenced by this the the sequels that came out in the 1940s the the mummy's hand and the mummy's tomb and that sort of thing and that was a I, I wish I'd thought of that because those films are not I haven't seen them in years and they're not very well regarded generally and they're seen as like kind of cheap cash-ins so don't have the kind of artistic interest of the first Universal 1932 mummy but you know those films were replayed endlessly on television over decades and I, I'm sure a lot of people got their ideas of like what The Mummy actually was from those films rather than from the original. So while I've never seen the director Stephen Summers say this outright, um, the slightly jokey tone and the more, you know, like general adventure movie tone of the 1999 Mummy, it could well owe something to, do to those slightly sillier sequels. They often have goofy, um, you know, comic relief characters in, in the manner of uh, of, of Stephen Summers' own Mummy. Oh yeah, I want to say thanks to Miles and Trey over at the Plastic Plesiosaur podcast for giving me a shout out recently um, in conjunction with my work on the explorer Percy Fawcett. Um, I'm Perfectly happy to be the go-to Fawcett guy, so if you, (laughs) in your work, ever come across uh, the work of a disappeared explorer, Percy Fawcett, and you want to point somebody who has spent hours and hours of their life making a multi-hour, four-part series on the man's life and work, uh, by all means, please do um, send them my way and check out those episodes uh, of Percy Fawcett, The Lost City of Zed, all that stuff, if you haven't listened to them. And yeah, thanks again to the guys over at Plastic Plesiosaur. Um, thanks also to Jeb Card, and now this is probably some weeks ago in the past by the time this comes out, but he had some thoughts on the 1950s uh, Abominable Snowman movie that I covered recently with um, Blake Smith and Karen Stolzno from Monster Talk, and I think he said that though he hadn't seen it, he was he recognised some of the ideas that were being trafficked in, in the script by the incomparable Nigel Neal, and he said something which I really should have mentioned myself, or at least it, this should have occurred to me, I, sh- I should have known better, but... He points out that theosophy is likely to be um, an important influence on this, and of course it is because not only are we talking about mystical Eastern ideas, you know, th- filtered through the West in the mid fifties, but um, the the idea of evolution and the idea of races and the idea of humans and apes and and our our you know represent rep- represent places in evolution. Um, he points out that this was an obsession of Madame Blavatsky and the the Theosophists. They were obsessed with a version of evolution, and not one. I, I think that um, a contemporary biologist would recognise, but you know, as it was, uh, theosophy coming out in the middle of the nineteenth century, um, Darwin's ideas were hot and new, and they incorporated a, a kind of a twisted, fever, <laughs> fever dream version of them into their into their philosophy, and and so theosophy as a as a worldview, as a belief, ha- it comes with this background of the, the root races, you know, numerous different. Um, appearances of different groups of people or things or animals and some of them are human-like some of them are ape-like some of them are entirely um, like energy beings almost and um, they're named after Atlantis and Lemuria and uh, lots of these like semi-mythical lost continents so you've you've got that whole lost world angle going on as well and, and the lost race angle and um, I, I think Jeb Card is correct in saying that this 1950s abominable snowman movie, with the whole concept of the, the the Yeti being this kind of elder, these wise elder beings hidden in inaccessible peaks, you know, it's absolutely hinting at you know, the ideas of theosophy with the hidden masters. And uh, not only that, but then the, the whole obsession with um, like Bigfoot and, and anomalous gorillas that appeared. In the mid 19th or late 19th century, after the advent of Darwinism, and again being a key element of theosophy, they're all wrapped together very, very nicely. So, um, I, I massively appreciated that. Thanks to big friend of the show, Victoria, for sending me on some lovely books recently. Um, she sent me a book called The Step on the Stair uh, Irish Supernatural Tales by Sheila St. Clair. This is important to both of us, as back on the long ago episode where we did our road trip to the Hellfire Club in Dublin. Um, We talked about a poltergeist case that I'd been trying to track down associated with what I thought was Killikey House, which is at the foot of the mountain where um, the Hellfire Club is. And I think that that story can be traced to this book, Step on the Stair, by Sheila St. Clair, I think it's 1972. Um, off the top of my head and she also sent me on uh, a book called Irish Wake Amusements so I'm always always on the lookout for a bit of Irish folklore so huge thanks to Victoria, big friend of the show you should definitely go back and listen to the Hellfire Club episodes. Um, and Thanks to Rick Worth um, who often has nice things to say on Twitter uh, but interestingly said that um, he gave a thanks to the show for inspiring a character in some of his work and I was presuming it would have been one of the uh monster hunters or, or supernatural investigators that we might have covered but he said no it's actually me myself and the fact that i drink a beer and tell a story and that this, this has influenced some character in his work so big thanks to rick he's always a good supporter and i wasn't expecting that so fun fun times big thanks to jeremy over at buy me a coffee jerry was uh, jeremy was very generous over there on that and if you want to be as well and um, you can do so over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and if you want to say hi anywhere else as of now yes i'm still on twitter i'm at strange ireland and i'm on instagram over at wide underscore atlantic underscore weird so you can say hi in either of those places. And this episode, I haven't really said it yet, Justin Mullis has come back. Brilliant. I'm about to get absolutely schooled, no doubt, in the history of monsters, both in supposedly real stories and out and out fiction, because that's what we're talking about today. We're going to talk through Justin's essay, Crypto Fiction. I'm going to talk about the influence of um, real-life monster stories on fiction and the reverse as well. I'm really, really looking forward to this. I know I'm going to learn Loads of things I didn't know before, as I always do um, when I talk with Justin. So hopefully you enjoy it too.
1: Yeah, so my name is Justin Mullis. I'm happy to be back. So I am a PhD candidate in American Cultural Studies at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And uh, my research interests include, uh, you know, I, I recently... Figured out this neat way to describe what I do uh, to a class of students that I'm I'm doing a summer class right now, and I said, you know, what interests me is I um, I'm I'm fascinated by places where our distinctions between uh, reality and fantasy start to blur, Um, and so that includes, you know, a lot of uh, Fortean phenomena and especially uh, stuff like cryptozoology. I think as we're going to be talking about. Uh, today, in th- these areas where things that we would normally think of as being in the context of, you know, um, science fiction, uh, start to seem to bleed into reality, and we start having questions about, you know, what's what's going on there and and where the line is. Um, so, yeah, my my PhD research is actually on the role of cryptozoology uh, in early America, uh, in particular. So, but I, I I write about a lot of this kind of stuff in general. So.
0: Amazing, and we spoke not too long ago about um, what you call fairy hemorrhism, the idea that uh, fairy lore might have some sort of uh, the, the the concept that it had uh, a reality to it. Maybe that fairy stories were describing some pre-human, pre-modern human race, and so so that episode is in the is the, in the catalogue for folks who want to take a listen, and I do recommend doing so. I learned uh, an, an absolute ton on that particular episode, and we're here today describing or talking about your article called Crypto Fiction, Science Fiction and the Rise of Cryptozoology. I'm going to read a a short bit from the beginning of the opening of that article, which might give us a kind of a a direction for this this episode. We're going to be talking about a whole lot of um, stuff from supposedly real and also out and out fiction uh, cryptozoology. So you wrote um, in that piece, what cryptozoology as a field has done is not so much in a new science as transform science fiction into a lived practice, a way of being and existing in the world apart from mainstream or conventional views of reality, which I quite like. So we're we're going to be talking about the mingling between reality and fiction in cryptozoology. And um, as a sort of a a broad statement, I might say, I, I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of modern cryptozoologists uh, wear brimmed hats in the manner of Indiana Jones, just to <laughs> give it a broad way in which I, I think this field is is a reality informed by fiction. But I'll, I'll let you take it from there.
1: Yeah, so um, I guess I, I mean I could talk about you know a, li- a little bit about how that article uh, came about. So. Um, that, was, uh, that was the first kind of scholarly piece I did that was uh, commissioned, you could say. Um, so I was contacted by uh, – so it, it appeared in a book called uh, The Paranormal and Popular Culture, uh, which was published by Routledge. It's a scholarly anthology of essays. But it was edited by Daryl Catteran and John W. Moorhead. And um, uh, I was contacted by uh, Daryl. Um, who I, I'd never, uh, I had to read his work in, in grad school, so that was surreal. But, um, you know, I got this email from him where he said, you know, I'm putting together this book of essays dealing with the intersection of the paranormal and popular culture, and I need a cryptozoology essay, and I was given your name as somebody who could write that. And, um, he's like, would you be interested, and do you have a take? And I said, yeah, I, I would be happy to do it, and, and I certainly have a take on this, um, and you know, last time I was on when we we talked about the fairy humorism uh issue, I mentioned that as an undergrad I'd read and was heavily influenced by uh the book uh, From Angels to Aliens. Um and uh in in that particular book, um you know, the uh by Lynn Schofield Clark, um, you know, the uh, what Clark shows is that there's this kind of feedback loop that happens between uh, sort of uh, paranormal or, or Fortian ideas and and popular fiction. So she showed that the rise of the belief in angels amongst Americans in the 1990s, as well as the belief in aliens, um, you know, happened in tandem with the popularity of the television show Touched by an Angel and then the X Files. Um, and and since then there have been other uh, scholars who have have worked on. Uh, you know, the same the same sort of premise, you know, so notably like Jason Colavito has done this kind of work looking at the whole ancient aliens idea. Andrew May has written a great book called uh, Pseudoscience and Science Fiction, uh, where he lays this out. Um, but n- nobody had really done this uh, that I was aware of um, with uh, with cryptozoology. Um, it, it, cryptozoology receives like the barest of mention, actually, in, in May's book. Um, you know, and, and so with sort of the exception being, I guess, Ben Radford's book, uh, Tracking the Chupacabra, where he makes the very convincing argument that the, the original Chupacabra sightings in the mid-90s were heavily influenced by uh, the, the release of the science fiction movie, Species. Um, so, but, you know, there there were some I, – I, I love that book by Radford. It's, it's really good. I cite it in this article, you know, but there were some issues – that I had with it, which is that Radford kind of builds off of some of the ideas I think of um, uh, a, a, another scholar, uh, Michael Barcomb, who wrote this book, *The Culture of Conspiracy*, um, where they, they make this argument for what Barkum calls fact fiction reversal, where you know it's this argument that like you know certain people are bad at distinguishing between reality and fantasy or, or reality and science fiction. And you know, with with all due respect, I always thought that that argument comes across as slightly condescending. Like it kind of sounds like parents talking to children who are like too old to still believe in Santa Claus. And and I thought there had to be a, a better explanation for what was going on. And you you hit on that in the excerpt that you read from the essay, um, which was I was taking a lot of inspiration from uh, anthropologist James Belo, who has done some work on specifically cryptozoology in the realm of of young earth creationism but you know one of the beeler Beeler talks about the idea that you know what you see in in like the young earth creationist movement with the way that they've appropriated sort of cryptozoological ideas is an example of, of world building right they are constructing a world that they want to live in that they want to think Exists and and this is a concept in religious studies, which is my background. It's what my my B. A. and my M. A. are in, um, which is known as this idea of lived practice, right? It's of it's of the idea that you know you can you can take a text, you know, typically in normal religious context, we're thinking about something like the Bible or the Quran here or what have you, you know, and you you can read the words on the page, and that's all they are. Or you know what makes it really a religion is that you transform it into a lived practice. And what I saw going on was that I saw that it seemed like in the realm of cryptozoology, the better explanation was that you had people taking science fiction and transforming it into a lived practice, right? They were looking at at the at this work, um, this this large body of literature, which is is termed crypto fiction. Um, which is a term that was actually coined uh back in 1998 by a cryptozoologist um, Craig Heinzelman uh and you know they're they're using this as a basis to think about about the world and how they want to be in it um and so that was that was kind of my take and the thing that I wanted to to argue in this essay or, or try to demonstrate really um that you know this is what I thought was going on and you know and one of the one of the questions that I've gotten sometimes about this essay um you know is well you know where's where's your you know sort of evidence for this um you know that that the cryptozoologists the people involved in cryptozoology are actively you know consuming this kind of material and my answer to that is always well it, it's just all over the literature if you spend any appreciable amount of time reading the cryptozoological literature There are constantly references to works of science fiction um and you we can start with bernard huvelman's the the so-called father of cryptozoology uh talks about you know in uh one of his his biographical essays that you know his childhood love um or his his interest in fantastic animals began with a childhood love of science fiction and he would Specifically, cite the works of Jules Verne, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and Jean D'Azay, um, who all wrote stories that could be considered examples of of crypto fiction. And then you have people like Lauren Coleman, uh, who runs the International Cryptozoology Museum today. You know, talks about his interest in cryptozoology began when he saw the Toho monster movie Half Human on television. Uh, other cryptozoologists, Carl Shuker, for example. Uh, constantly blog and write about um, examples of crypto fiction or science fiction. And in fact, that's been one of the great ways for me to find out about a lot of this material Um, and and in a way that I'm still finding out about a lot of this material. I mean, you have people like uh, the Ohio-based cryptozoologist Chad Arment uh, has his own publishing house, Coach Whip uh, Books, and he has published numerous anthologies of crypto fiction Um, you know, that are very, very popular amongst cryptozoological uh enthusiasts. Uh so and uh you know and and so like they're they're very aware of this literature um and and you know are are clearly uh influenced by it and it's, it's clearly you know influenced uh influenced them as well. So
0: mm, I'm sure I have a whip book here somewhere um which is a collection <laughs> only of um uh, crypt, crypt cryptid insect st- short stories um from from uh, 10 or 15 years ago so yeah i'm familiar with their work and i, I suppose rather than you know the idea that people have, have a difficulty in in differentiating literally have a difficulty in differentiating fact and fiction which i'm sure there's a small percentage of people who are like that but it's never sat well with me as um you know a good explanation for all of the sightings that that occur within the realm of cryptozoology the you know it, Blake Smith, who we both know, and and listeners will know from Master Talk, and who spoke with with us recently on the show about the abominable snowman movie from the 1950s, um, uses the term the the culturally available template, the idea that if something does happen to you, you know, you're likely to interpret it in the light of stories you've heard previously, and um, yeah, uh, you know, it's 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 a version of this which I've I've found slightly less or less less condescending, I suppose. But when I when I first read Huvelman's book, um, you know, his rather seminal 1950s cryptozoology book on the track of unknown animals. I was shocked at how blatantly he lays out that, yes, he read The Lost World as a kid and was rocked by it. And, you know, he calls one of his early I know I've said this before on the show. He calls one of his early chapters. There are lost worlds everywhere. and And just how blatantly he is inspired by fiction and has set out into the world to make this fiction a reality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a couple of things that I like to pick up on. But just going with the Huvelmans thing for a second, yeah, you know, there are there are numerous quotes um, from different works of of fiction throughout *On the Track of Unknown Animals* um, that Huvelmans uses, um, basically as kind of like uh, not not so much citations, but I guess they kind of like to set the mood, right? That he wants to, he clearly wants his readers to be in a kind of mindset um which is which is interesting right and i think that's where we get to that thing that i was talking about before which is this sort of you know intentional sort of blurring the line between fact and fiction right because you're sort of setting the mood by by giving people quotes from well-known works of of science fiction and then you're proceeding to tell them about things that you are claiming are happening in the real world that sound like something out of science fiction right um, and, yeah. and he does this, he does this in, in, just about all of his books. And I mean, the other one is, you know, there are, there are a couple of Hulvulman's works at this point that haven't been translated into English. They're only still available in French. And, and these were ones that he wrote, uh, towards the end of his life. One of the ones that I would love to see, um, translate is he wrote a book called The Last Dragons of Africa. That was just Yeah, his I'd love whole, to get that in English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His whole... Uh, you know his kind of final thoughts at the end of his life on the whole idea of relic dinosaurs living in africa, but there's been there's been uh one chapter from it has been translated, which is the chapter on relic pterosaurs and it was printed in two issues of Strange magazine, which was a paranormal publication in the nineties um and so i I have both of those um Issues or uh, that have that chapter in them, and it's really interesting that like literally that chapter just opens up with basically an extended excerpt from the climax of Conan Doyle's *The Lost World*, where Challenger brings out the pterosaur egg. So, um, wow. so again, he's still like using this same this same strategy of of setting that sort of that sort of template. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say. Uh, since you you brought up the point about uh, your recent interview with Blake and Karen of Monster Talk um, was, you know, along, along that same lines, uh, you know, one of the, one of the books that's been, uh, that I, that's been a big influence on me and that I think is just a phenomenal uh, piece of scholarship uh, in terms of of cryptozoology is Michelle Merger's uh, Lake Monster Traditions from 1988 is the English translation of that book. It was originally uh, written in, in French, and you know one of the points that Merger makes um, early on in the book, uh, which I, I think is really interesting, because um, it seems like I see this book being cited by both people who are you know on the the believer side and the skeptic side, if we want to use those terms, on cryptozoological issues, and yet both of them seem to either be like completely missing this point or perhaps willfully. Ignoring it, which is that you know, Merger says that he thinks that both the cryptozoologists and the the sort of hardcore skeptics are are wrong um, in their their sort of analysis of of these kinds of cases when it comes to like eyewitnesses um, or or you know, putative eyewitnesses. And he talks about you know, saying he uses the example of the Loch Ness monster of saying you know. Arguing that Nessie is a is a plesiosaur or a zooglodon or an unknown long-necked pinniped is wrong, but it's equally erroneous to claim that Nessie is just a piece of driftwood or waves or seals that people are looking at. And because Merger's position on this from being a folklorist is he says the real identity of the Loch Ness monster is that it's a legend, right, which means that it's a story that's told as if it was true. Right. And so there's this whole idea like cryptids are stories. Um, and that that seems to be the thing that, you know, neither side necessarily wants to accept, you know, because, you know, they want there to be an actual there there. There is this this I, I think Blake used the term when he was on this idea of kind of a reductionist materialism. Right. Um, but that idea yeah. of uh, of you know cryptids being narratives of being stories, right. then I think you know, uh, lends itself nicely to the the kind of work that I want to do here or, you know, I've done elsewhere, such as when we had the fair humorous conversation, which is, you know, OK, well, then let's look at stuff that is overtly narratives, right? Let's look at, you know, this this particular genre of like crypto fiction. So and see, you know, what ideas are being anticipated or what ideas are being, responded to right and how these things are like you know feeding into each other. So
0: I, I suppose for me, listeners will know I'm my obsession with The Lost World um is, is a key is, is a key text any way you look at it. And it's not the earliest of the genre, not, not even slightly, but um I, I remember I spoke to Richard Fallon who who ed- has done many things but has edited um creatures of another age, which I'm sure we'll come back to as as there are many stories in that compilation which will fit into our discussion today. But um you know i I had a difficulty in talking to him in in conceiving of the lost world as having a history because to me, you know on an emotional level, it was such a primordial such a such a game changing text and so and it's not that it's the earliest example of its kind. it's just that uh, as as I wrote as I read somewhere it's when dinosaur fiction came of age, it's when all the you know you go back to the earlier texts that can, can contain fictional dinosaurs, and there's something basic or simplistic or unsatisfying about them. And somehow they, they, the various elements come together in The Lost World in, in 1912. And tr- for me personally, there's a before and after The Lost World. And so almost everybody writing after that point is writing with The Lost World in mind and almost everybody writing prior to that. And you, you may feel differently to this, but to me, anybody writing prior to this, you know, is writing before the the, the genre has has kind of congealed. And to me, it's, it's like this kind of, key text along the lines of King Solomon's Minds, which, you know, s- consolidates the idea of the Lost Race story and then the modern adventure story. And then for a later generation, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, solidifies the the, the, the modern, modern or the postmodern or whatever you want to have um, version of the modern Hollywood uh, adventure story. And, and to me, it's one of those texts and so i hope we'll be able to get into things examples of this from before and after it and, and how they change on either side of what to me is is a very important axis.
1: yeah absolutely well i think you know um with with regards to, like the lost world uh you know it, it is the first um as far as as far as i'm aware you know it's really the first uh novel that is about dinosaurs um there there had been novels that featured dinosaurs um in them but not to the extent that the lost world had and and had not really been sold on the fact that this was a story about dinosaurs most of what existed prior if it was dinosaur centric were or short stories or in a few cases um perhaps novellas and and then you know the other thing is of course just the the utter um, stature of sir arthur conan doyle right being the author of that work and already being at that point, yeah. you know, so famous for Sherlock Holmes, um, you know, really, really elevated that. And I think, you know, you can see there's there's a direct parallel in the way that, you know, when Crichton writes Jurassic Park, um, that triggers another subsequent wave of of dinosaur mania. And that's the story that gets adapted into film by Steven Spielberg. And in the same way that the Lost World is going to get adapted by by Harry Holt, um, so uh, because because of the stature that Crichton already has as as you know a, a grandmaster of of science fiction, um, and even though again you know uh, people I I run into often you know assume that before Crichton nobody had written a story about. Uh, cloning dinosaurs, and, and then I get to disabuse them of that by saying, oh, no, that idea goes actually all the way back to 1933, and Elsprog de Camp's short story, Employment, um, is the first example of that. So, but, you know, nobody made a film out of employment or anything else. It was it was Crichton and Jurassic Park, so... <laughs>
0: Yeah. And I think status or no status, like just the sheer craftsmanship of like Arthur Conan Doyle was a fantastic writer and the use he made of dinosaurs was, I think, more interesting and, and just better done than a lot of what had gone before. And I think you could say the same for uh, maybe Crichton and, and I think definitely Spielberg you know and timing is part of it and what else is going on in the world at the time but um, their impetus uh, their their um, effectiveness as as masters of their craft I think has to come into that too you know sometimes for a genre to come to mature you need the right person to to take a hold of it and maybe make a masterpiece out of it so, shall we hit up on some earlier stories some some stuff that's prior to nineteen twelve and what what was the situation with um, cryptozoology and stories about uh, surviving prehistoric animals or other history animals?
1: Yeah, sure. So um yeah, so if we want to go with with the the lost world uh, template or or that example, um you know we can look at at what's going on with the idea of um of relic relic dinosaurs, right? So, I mean, you know dinosaurs. Uh, you know, come into the, the popular consciousness, as you already said. I mean, you discussed this with um, with Richard uh, Fallon already. And, uh, you know, so, but, you know, the, the bones are discovered in the early 19th century. And then, um, you know, towards the end of the 19th century, uh, you know, they, they start gaining um, a lot of popularity. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting about this, and I actually gave a talk back in uh, November of 2019 at the, Uh, American Academy of Religion's uh, big annual meeting, is that there's often this this sort of assumption that the discovery of dinosaurs sort of really uh, threw uh, the Victorian populace for a loop, right? They weren't prepared for this. It really shocked them. It caused them to kind of rethink their worldview and everything. And and I actually don't think that that's true. I don't really see the evidence for that. and and so I, I presented this this paper actually where I made this argument that um what actually happened was that Victorians accepted dinosaurs pretty quickly and and pretty seamlessly because to their mind this wasn't some new thing that was suddenly being introduced. Um, that they had to then uh, make sense of or reconcile, this was just actually confirmation of something they'd known all along, which was that dragons were real. Um, and so, you know, and you can find examples of this. So again, looking specifically at this idea of fiction. Um, so one of the the earliest examples of this is actually um, a book uh, called Voyage to the Center of the Earth from 1821, not to be confused with the Jules Verne, novel that would be much more famous later on but this was an an early novel that was actually written by uh Colin D Flancy um who is you know more famous he was a French occultist he's more famous for having written the dictionary of the infernal um which kind of became the the template for You know what everybody afterwards thought they knew about demonology um but he wrote this earlier uh novel where he has you know a group of explorers descend down into a hollow earth um they encounter uh these these uh tiny humanoids that are supposed to be the gnomes of folklore so again we have an example of uh fairy uhemerism. but they also encounter pterodactyls and when the explorers first spot Um, these these pterodactyls, one of them remarks, um, quote, we knew that ancient writers spoke of dragons as winged serpents, truly existent, but our moderns who think themselves far more educated had accustomed us to regard the dragon as a fake animal, end quote, right? So it's this idea of, like, you know, we always knew dragons were real, but, you know, the, the, Sort of you know intelligentsia started telling us that they didn't exist and then lo and behold here's an actual you know flying serpent a, a pterodactyl and you find this same sentiment then um you know several decades later in the 1860s when uh the english uh, writer charles kingsley publishes his famous children's book, The Water Babies. And so um, you have this quote from that work, which is, uh, quote, did not learned men to hold till within the last 25 years that a flying dragon was an impossible monster. And do we not now know that there are hundreds of them found as fossils up and down the world? People call them pterodactyls, but that is only because they are ashamed to call them dragons after denying so long that dragons could exist. End quote. Um, and and so you know you see this this kind of sentiment um, expressed in in fiction. It's also expressed in uh, nonfiction writing from this period as well. Um, there's a wealth of examples of that. But sticking with fiction, then you know that I think that uh, quote from the Water Babies leads us in nicely to um, what I am am now aware, courtesy of. Uh, you know Richard's book that you mentioned, *Creatures of Another Age*. What seems to be the earliest example of a kind of relic dinosaur crypto fiction story, which is Charles Jacob Peterson's *The Last Dragon* from 1871. And so this is a story that was originally published in the October issue of *Peter* of *Pearson's Magazine*, um, which is a, an American uh, magazine, and it was actually uh, written by uh, Peterson. Um, well, Peterson was the editor of that magazine, and so he actually published it under a pseudonym, which was uh, Harry Danforth. Um, but this is a really short story; it's almost like a piece of, of flash fiction. But it also is a story that, when I first read it um, a, a few years ago, when when uh, that book came out, you know, it feels really ahead of its time because it feels incredibly pulp. Um, the the main character is this guy Charles Stone, uh, which is, I mean, I. That's a pretty pulp name, right there. Um, you know, but he's he's sitting around uh, at a kind of adventurers club, you know, talking to uh, you know the the other guys there about their their exploits, and he brings up, you know, he asks them, you know, have any of you ever seen a dragon? And they all kind of laugh this off. And then he proceeds to make what is a very cryptozoological argument, where he says, you know, now hold on a second, you know, do we not know about the great saurians? Are the great saurians not, you know, dead ringers for dragons? And they're like okay sure and he's like all right and did you know was it not at one point thought that other prehistoric animals like the mammoth and the great ground sloth existed you know before man and now we know that they were contemporaries with man and everybody else is like yeah okay he's like so is it impossible that the saurians were contemporaries with men and everyone's like okay i i could grant you that and then he goes on to say plus we have dragon legends from all over the world you know do not dragons again you know kind of of look like saurians, and everybody's like, "Yeah, all right, but you know do you, do you have any other proof?" and then he proceeds to tell them this story where he's like, "Actually, I do, because I was on this uh voyage once and we got um shipwrecked off the coast of Africa. you know we had to uh you know drop anchor in this little uh inlet on the the coast um you know and and uh while we were there, this you know he basically describes a plesiosaur." um or a lasmosaur type marine reptile, you know, came up out of the swamp and and attacked them and and they had a gun battle with it, right? Um and it's it's very pitched and it's a very exciting story. But this seems to be uh the the earliest example of this and one that would then subsequently be uh replicated over and over in later fiction. So then uh for example in 1903 you have the story uh, the slaying of the plesiosaur by Edwin J. Webster, which I'm convinced Webster had to have read, um, you know, uh, Peterson's story because they're so close. Uh, and this has been at a time when, you know, plagiarism would have been a lot harder to catch. Um, but this was a story that was originally published in National Magazine uh, in, in March of 1903. It's also, again, very short, very action-packed. The main character even has a very similar name, uh, which is he's Captain Charles Jackson. He's part of a um a British sort of uh, colonization uh effort in africa he's He's out scouting around his second in command is uh, is an Arab guy named uh, Lascar um, and uh, who is is described as like this old veteran who has fought every kind of beast and man there is and and the thing is so he sends lascar out on a scouting expedition and he hasn't come back on time and you know he says you know if it was any other man he wouldn't have thought much of it but you know he expects this guy to be you know punctual unless something something bad must have happened for him not to be back on time and then eventually you know he shows up to camp um looking just awful. He's lost all of his ammunition. His clothes are all torn to shreds. Um and plus none of the other men that were sent with him are are there. And he tells uh Captain Jackson, you know, well we were scouting this one area and there was a uh lake that was on top of a volcano. And we thought we would scout that and the the um natives the people who lived in the area told us no don't go up there there's a, a devil that lives on top of that mountain and uh you know they they laughed it off as just a superstition um and so they go up there they um survey the this this volcanic lake and then they build a little raft and go out to the center of it because they're going to um you know see how deep it is and they have uh, you know, three sounding lines and they drop the first one and it doesn't hit bottom and then they tie it to the second one and keep going down, it doesn't hit bottom and they tie the third one, and it still doesn't hit bottom. So, you know, you have this impression that this lake is almost like bottomless, right? Maybe it goes down into a, a hollow earth, but then all of a sudden, again, this plesiosaur comes up out of the lake, attacks them, uh, you know, kills all the other men. Only Liska um, makes it out alive you know he's literally just got you know run, this thing chases him you know up uh you know through the lake up onto the shore he's describes himself you know running for his life you know firing at random backwards um and then of course you know when captain jackson hears about this he's just like oh fun let's go kill this thing <laughs> um <laughs> and uh and and of course, Lescas just like you know i I really don't want to fight the devil a second time and and Captain Jackson's just like, now we're gonna do it. He's like, plus this time we'll bring dynamite, so um and and they do, and again, it's this you know pitched battle, you know with all of these men fighting off this you know monstrous plesiosaur which they they do ultimately dispatch uh with with dynamite, and then the uh, third example that I would cite um, that along the same kind of theme of this kind of African uh, dinosaur theme, which is the one that I also write about in my essay, is Henry Francis's The Last Haunt of the Dinosaur from uh, 1908. And this was a published in the September issue of the English Illustrated Magazine. Um, it's got illustrations, as, as the title would suggest, by an artist credited as B. Munns. Um, they're really great illustrations, too. Uh, they're, you know, they're almost just the, uh, you know, exact thing that you would picture, you know, guys in pith helmets, um, you know, and then them being, you know, them, them fighting off this dinosaur. There's, there's four or five of these illustrations that go with this story. And that's actually one of the things, um, that I was, I was disappointed with, with, with my article because originally when I wrote it, I had all this stuff in there where I tried to mention every time there was art and credit the artists. And it was something that because we had to keep the word count down, my editors ultimately, you know, uh, said, you know, you've got to cut all of these references to the artists and stuff. But oftentimes when these stories get republished in collections, um, the artwork that was originally with them don't get reprinted. And the artwork is often spectacular. Um, you know, in in these older publications, it'll be black and white, but then later on when we get into the, the, uh, you know, especially the post Second World War era, they'll often be in color um, and they will be beautiful painted, um, you know, illustrations and, and stuff. Um, and, and the thing is that, you know, meaning that if people weren't reading these stories and they were just flipping through the magazines that they were in, they would have still seen these illustrations, which means that the illustrations still would have informed uh, their ideas of, of you, know, um, you know, what, you know, of, of cryptozoology just based on, on the artwork. But uh, this particular story, The Last Haunt of the Dinosaur, you've got two Oxford scientists. There's a young graduate student named uh, Lyle Somers and then uh, his his professor, who's about 50, whose name is Owen Griffith. And they are going off to Africa to look for fossils, uh, which was something that was actually going on in the early 20th century. There was a lot of African fossil exploration. Um, they end up in the Cape of Good Hope. Uh, they... Uh, You know, uh, meet up with with various, uh, again, uh, indigenous uh, people there, you know, tell them that they're looking for, you know, these these stone uh, bones and uh, the the locals warn them, you know, well, you know, don't go into this place that we call the Valley of Death because there's this horrible monster there. And, uh, you know, the the scientists are kind of, again, dismissive of this. They think this is a sort of superstition. Um, but Somers, the graduate student, he starts saying, you know, goes, well, what if this could be a living dinosaur? And then what if dinosaurs are the basis of dragon legends? And his professor is kind of, uh, you know, skeptical of this, right, doesn't believe it. Um, and they decide to, you know, go down into the Valley of Death anyway to see if there are fossils there. Um, and... And then sure enough, in the middle of the night, them and their party are attacked by uh, this, um, you know, huge uh, dinosaur, which is uh, described, it it says it looks, uh, quote, a horrible looking monster with a body like an enormous rat, a tail like an alligator, with a long neck and head like a python, and wholly larger than any elephant, end quote. And the, the illustrations bear this out that it's uh, some kind of sauropod, uh, and the only thing that doesn't really fit is, of course, the dinosaur is, is, a carnivore, and so it's, uh, attacking their, um, you know, their native guides and, and killing them, and, um, you know, but the, the two scientists, uh, like the rest of the, the men in this story have come, uh, you know, heavily armed, and they unleash a veritable blitzkrieg of bullets on the dinosaur, um, that says, uh, uh, the dinosaur uh, naturally fights back, but ultimately succumbs once it has had quote four ounces of honest lead end quote <laughs> pumped into it. So, um, and and you know, and so now they know, uh, you know that dinosaurs, you know, uh, still exist, right? Non avian dinosaurs uh, still exist, and so those are those are three really good examples of the sort of lost early early uh, lost world stories specifically set in Africa, all of which anticipate Carl um, uh, Hagenbach's uh, 1908 nonfiction uh, autobiography of beasts and men and and Hagenbach was a famous German uh, zoo tycoon uh, and an exotic animal trader and he publishes you know this autobiography talking about uh, a lot of his exploits and in uh, chapter three how wild animals are caught Hagenbach makes this uh, very you know extraordinary claim that while in Rhodesia he'd heard uh, rumors about some you know immense animal that was described by the locals as being quote half elephant half dragon uh, end quote that that exists somewhere in the depths of the Rhodesian swamps and uh, and Hagenback writes that to his mind quote uh, this can only be some kind of dinosaur seemingly akin to the brontosaurus end quote. And Hagenbach talks about how he was going to try to go into the swamps and capture it, but um he unfortunately was unable to because the swamps were inhabited by disease carrying insects and quote bloodthirsty savages, end quote. Um but then he he ends the chapter by saying Uh, Quote, notwithstanding this failure, I have not relinquished the hope of being able to present science with indisputable evidence of the existence of this monster, and perhaps if I succeed in this enterprise, naturalists all the world over will be roused to hunt vigorously for other unknown animals, for if this prodigious dinosaur, which is supposed to have been extinct for hundreds of thousands of years, be still in existence, what other wonders may not be brought to light? End quote. Um, and so this, in particular, is often cited as uh, the kind of case zero, if you will, for the Mokelia momembe, or this idea that there's some kind of sauropod dinosaur living somewhere in Africa. Um, lots of writers have noted that, you know, somehow it, it inexplicably gets moved from Rhodesia to the Congo later on. That seems to have really been something that uh, the, the early cryptozoological writer Willie Lay uh, did but um you know but what I think what's what's important here is that you know in fact Hagenbach um you know as as Blake would say, had an available cultural template clearly <laughs> um in in you know the example of all three of the stories that I just described um so this does not necessarily seem to be something that he had to make up right no, um yeah. or even necessarily authentically hear from the locals um not saying that he didn't but you know again uh you know the the ideas were definitely out there and it's it's striking how much that those last couple paragraphs in that third chapter of of beasts and men sound like you know one of these uh early uh, lost world stories or or relic dinosaur stories that i've just described so
0: Mm. And uh, several uh, writers have commented that at about this time, 1908, uh, 1910, 1912, um, you have another, you know, not the first wave of Dinomania, but uh, a, a later one where um, skeletons of, of sauropods in particular are mounted uh, famously in museums around the world. And, and so people start talking about dinosaurs and becoming excited about them in, in a new way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and especially yeah, you have the the first Brontosaurus skeleton is in um 1879 and then um it's it's shortly after that that you have uh the whole um the whole flurry of interest surrounding uh the discovery of Diplodocus which was this uh this pet project of the famous American industrialist, Andrew Carnegie. And there's a great blog out there called um, Prehistoric Pulp done by this guy, Walt Williams. And he has an article (laughs) on there called uh, Brontosaurus, uh, a forgotten star, where he really shows how popular Brontosaurus was as a dinosaur when it was first discovered and that it kept showing up over and over again in fiction and art and other places in popular culture another really great um uh, book that touches on this is um is the book uh Dinomania, um by ulrich merkel uh that came out several years ago uh which uh is is more of a art history uh look at early dinosaurs in popular culture but again uh merkel really shows that you know it was the brontosaurus and the large like sauropods that captured People's imaginations, and you would see, you know, these illustrations in newspapers of them, you know, juxtaposed against skyscrapers or walking down city streets, and and various various things like this. So, um, in fact, uh, one of those articles, which I know um, Richard Fallon talks about in his book on dinosaurs in Victorian and Edwardian popular culture, uh, is this is this very famous one that was. Um, uh, had the title something like the largest monster ever found out west, and one of the things that um, uh, Richard points out, which I'd always wondered about, because I've seen reproductions of this article, but I've never seen a reproduction where you could actually read it. Um, and I I always thought it was interesting that there was clearly this drawing of a diplodocus, but then there was a picture of a ceratosaurus skull, and and Richard says that in that article they misidentify the ceratosaurus skull as being the diplodocus's skull. And I have to wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that a lot of these early um, mokele uh reports describe what sounds like a sauropod dinosaur, except with the odd addition of a horn on its nose. Yes, yes so, like a ceratosaurus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So.
0: So that that we're getting incrementally closer to 1912 and the Lost World but in the years just before that um we get uh well uh, Arthur Conan himself writes uh The Terror of Blue John Gap in 1910 which is sort of a, a a surviving prehistoric animal story I suppose
1: Yeah so this is an interesting kind of precursor to to his own The Lost World which is um a, a story about a guy who uh the main character in that one's name escapes me at the moment, but, um, it is, uh, uh Dr. James Hardcastle. There we go. Another very good pulp <laughs> name. Um, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he is, uh, he's not feeling well. And so he goes, you know, as, as you would do back in the day, they would recommend you, you know, go get some air in the countryside. And, uh, he, he heads out and he finds out that, uh, something is preying on the locals' livestock, right? And they don't know what it is. It's leaving weird footprints. Again, this is a classic cryptozoological setup. And um, and so, Doctor, you know, Hardcastle decides that he is going to investigate, and he ends up, you know, following this creature's tracks into this cave and and descending down into this cave. And it turns out what it is is it's a a relic. Cave bear, but one that's grown abnormally large and has also become uh, blind um, over the years, which explains why it's doing its hunting um, at night, right? Uh, and and so you know, and, and he he runs into this creature, uh, barely escapes with his life the first time, but then does you know sort of the heroic thing and and goes back um, and sees that it's it's dispatched, so that it'll stop you know terrorizing. The countryside, and this this story was also presented uh, alongside illustrations that that show this creature very frightening looking, you know, rearing up actually on its hind legs with these, um, you know, dead white eyes, um, you know, staring down at the uh, the protagonist. So yeah, that that's um, that sort of uh, seems to be uh, Conan Doyle's first kind of flirtation with the prehistoric survivor theme um and that that will then you know two years later you have the lost world so
0: so i i speak constantly about the lost world and uh we, I did, I talked about it on our episode about the illustrations of the different versions of the lost world and i have an older episode called the prehistory of the lost world about conan doa's own interest in in Prehistory and 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 his supposed uh, cryptological sightings that he had himself. I suppose I don't know. Do you have any particular insights on on the lost world itself? Um, regard regarding this subgenre as a whole. Is there anything particularly important about it beyond my own emotional attachment to it? Is there anything for you that makes this a uh, a key or fundamental text? Is there anything different that Doyle does with it uh, that hadn't been done before that makes it? Is, is it just his his presence, his ability, his um his prominence as a writer that that makes it more important?
1: Um, No, I mean, I I think what we said before and and what you've covered in past episodes is is really uh, sufficient, you know, um, like like we already talked about. I mean, the story is incredibly influential, not only on the world of science fiction, not only on the popularity of dinosaurs, but, you know, and then uh, specifically, though, on – the world of of cryptozoology and the fact that huvelmans you know cites it as an early influence and then continues to use it as as a kind of flavor text throughout his cryptozoological writing you know it is um yeah it's definitely you know it is is a key work of of crypto fiction of part of this genre um you know both both with regards i guess I'll, I'll mention uh not only because of the presence of the living dinosaurs and other Prehistoric megafauna, but also the ape men, right? Uh, which I know we talked about briefly on on the last time that I was on here. But you know, ape men are going to become so important in the world of cryptozoology uh, with the Yeti and Bigfoot and Sasquatch and all the rest. And this story again um, provides an early example of of that type of creature. So,
0: excellent. And of course, then I might if we jump forward in time a little bit to the film version in, in 1925, just because I'd like to talk a little bit about the uh, the special effects wizard uh, Willis, Willis O'Brien, who later did King Kong. But this is, um, again, this is, is this perhaps one of the earliest or certainly one of the more widespread iterations of the 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 sort of meme of the prehistoric monster run amok in a, in a modern city, which was something that wasn't in, well, it was minorly present in the original novel where uh, I think it's a pterodactyl escapes from, um, captivity in london and and briefly wreaks havoc but in in the 1925 movie with the stop-motion creatures it's it's a it's a a sauropod dinosaur uh, uh, who kind of runs amok in london
1: yeah absolutely yeah i mean you know in the original uh uh, doyle novel you know yeah challenger brings this pterosaur back with him, um and it it doesn't do uh a whole lot you know it, it it you know flies out of a window and then you know you don't you don't really uh, uh, hear from it again. So um, w- interestingly enough, though, um, I will briefly briefly mention, again, that same book, uh, Creatures of Another Age, that uh, Richard put together. There is a oh, story yes. called The Dragon of St. Paul's yes. uh, by Reginald Bacchus and Cyril Ranger Gull, which is predates The Lost World. It's from April 1899, published in the Legate Monthly. But um, that story... If if you, somebody wanted to to do a little bit of editing and stick it onto the end of Doyle's The Lost World, <laughs> yes, it, you could you could absolutely get away with it because it is basically about a pterodactyl that gets loose. Um, in london and it ends again with a great action set piece where the the police have this massive shootout with it at a church where it's it's taken up roost in, in a tower so
0: oh and um, it, it does a, it attacks the crystal palace as well if i remember correctly
1: i believe so yes <laughs> so.
0: i couldn't believe that i, I couldn't believe yeah exactly the, the image of a of a pterodactyl in in victorian london or edwardian london you know at you know 10 years prior to the lost world that was incredible
1: yeah. So, um, but yeah. So when the movie comes along, the 1925 movie, they wisely make the decision uh, that the ending needs to have a little bit more, um, you know, uh, 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 drama. And so instead of a pterodactyl, they bring back a fully grown brontosaurus. Again, uh, this this early superstar of the dinosaurs, <laughs> and uh, you know, much like much like anticipating, obviously King Kong, which both had. You know, Willis O'Brien doing the special effects. They don't really explain how they got this brontosaurus back, where (laughs) they were keeping it. But, you know, you get Challenger up there giving this speech, and then all of a sudden somebody runs in and is like, the brontosaurus has escaped. (laughs) And then we get a smash cut to the dinosaur rampaging through the city streets, uh, causing all kinds of destruction. And yeah, this is the first time this kind of thing is depicted in film. It had definitely been present before in art um and uh and and illustration but yeah this is this is its debut of this concept of the prehistoric monster on a loose uh in the city in the world of, of cinema and you know can rightly be seen as as the beginning of you know uh the the, the kaiju genre really yes. right so <laughs> yeah
0: yeah that's that's great and um, and so the DNA of King Kong is in the nineteen twenty five Lost World, really, because King Kong is 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 itself a Lost World story, really, with a, a mystica an, an island of prehistoric creatures, and then one of one of which runs amok, um in in the modern city once again. But um, I see you you have in the notes here that uh, might be worth mentioning. Uh, the original Kong screenplay, and and that you have some connections you'd like to make there, and various novelizations of Kong. I know there was there's an extended Kong universe, some of which is is hinted at in the in the Peter Jackson Kong, where he tries to expand things a bit using pieces of Kong lore from over the years. But I'd be interested to hear what um what what was this expanded universe like in the original scripts, or were there extra creatures that we didn't see?
1: Yeah, so um yeah, so I'm a big King Kong fan, uh, just like you, and and so I have actually. Um, I I wrote an essay on Kong. So this was actually back in 2017. So in 2017, I actually taught a class um, at uh, my previous university uh, dealing with with King Kong and and apes in popular culture. And uh, at the same time, uh, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to contribute to a series of articles that he was doing uh, for his website uh, leading up to the Uh, release of um, uh, Jordan Vaught-Roberts' Kong Skull Island. Um, And I said, well, do you have anybody writing anything about the uh, 1932 novelization? And he was like, no, um, I don't think that would be very interesting. Isn't it just a description of of what's in the film? And I was like, no, it's not, Um, because (laughs) it's actually based on uh, Ruth Rose's early, one of Ruth Rose's early drafts, because, um, and this is still true about movie novelizations today, which is that, you know, you have, if you want the novelization to come out um, either uh, before the film to drum up publicity for it, which was the case with King Kong, or, uh, you know, at the same time as your film, uh, to serve as a a kind of cross-promotion, the novel obviously has to be written well in advance, which means that the writer has to be working off of an earlier uh, uh, screenplay. So uh, I, I did end up writing uh, this short piece for for my friend's site um, about this. And then that got uh, you know, the attention of a, a friend of mine, a friend and colleague, John LeMay, who is a man who uh, wears many hats. He is a film historian, as well as a cryptozoologist and a ufologist. And uh, and John said, you know, I'm putting together this book called uh, Kong Unmade, The Lost Films of Skull Island. Would you be interested in turning this short article into a whole chapter on the prose works of Kong? And I said, yeah, I would. It gave me uh, an excuse to do a whole lot more research and tap a bunch of different uh, resources. But yeah, there is there is a surprising number of early Kong prose adaptations. So the best known is the 1932 novelization came out about three months before the release of the film in March of 1933. Um, it was written by Delos W. Lovelace, who was an old college buddy, C. Cooper, the creator of King Kong. And uh, he, and uh, one of the things that I, I, Uncovered while I was doing this research was that I'd often read that, you know, Loveless was, you know, sort of just paid an initial writer's fee and that was it. Um, based on papers that were in the Marion C. Cooper Archives at Brigham State, uh, Brigham Young University, um, actually, Loveless was was handsomely compensated for this novel and collected royalties on it. Um, so he he made out quite well uh, for doing this. Um and, and the novel does have a number of differences. Uh you get um you know the the famous scene of Kong confronting a bunch of triceratopses, which was supposed to be in the film and was cut out. You get the even more famous spider pit sequence uh that was supposed to be in the film and was cut out. Um, there's a few other interesting uh differences as well. Uh, you know, we get some additional backstory on uh, Jack and Anne, um, there's there's actually a scene uh, towards the end of the novel when Kong is on his rampage where things are actually told from Kong's point of view. That's uh, sort of interesting. Um, yeah, you know, I, I would tell people, you know, uh, check out, check out my essay if you want the uh, whole uh, list of of all of the the many differences. But in addition to that that novelization, um, there was also, Uh, published an abridged version in Mystery Magazine. This was in the February and March 1933 issue, Um, and this was because uh, Cooper had originally hired the famed mystery writer Edgar Wallace to work on the story for King Kong and the initial screenplay, but Wallace ended up dying um, shortly into the process from a complication of uh, pneumonia and diabetes. Um, and so wasn't able to, uh, to, to continue working on it. And so, uh, but Cooper um, and, and, and a, a move to both kind of honor Wallace and, and frankly, I think, exploit his name, uh, you know, kept him on as, as the credited story writer and then had this version appear in Mystery Magazine uh, under his name as well, um, when in fact it was written by another guy named Walp- Walter F. Rippagear. Um, and then we also have a uh, another version that's published in October of 1933 in Cinema Weekly magazine, which is written by Draycott Montague Dell. This version was later reprinted in a uh, U.K. juvenile uh, publication called Boys magazine. And uh, this one featured a couple of very dynamic but uncredited illustrations. And uh, I know this was... From from a previous episode of yours, you'd mentioned that, um, you know, somewhere out there in the Kong lore, that little uh, two-legged lizard that attacks Jack when he's hiding under the log from Kong uh, is known as the Polysoro, and that's <laughs> where that comes from, is from this Cinema Weekly yeah. version. It's identified I, as a Polysoro, so...
0: I- think i learned that from richard but i, I can't remember for <laughs> sure I, I can't claim that one anyway
1: <laughs> but yeah so and then the the other version that's worth mentioning is uh um crime fiction novelist kingsley long uh serializes it's in 37 installments uh a version of king kong that's run in the london daily herald starting in april of 1933 and this is basically the king kong uh, novelization but told as in, in the style of a series of newspaper articles as if this was something that had really happened and it also goes into much greater detail probably the most interesting thing being that it reveals that the origins of kong and the skull islanders uh are that they're originally from atlantis so wow yeah I so did- skull island is like a remnant of of atlantis so um but you know, this is this is important uh because so it's actually uh David Coleman, who's the author of the the great book, The Bigfoot Filmography, uh and and no relation to Lauren Coleman, um, but <laughs> David Coleman uh has said that you know, probably there's no more important work in the history of crypto fiction than King Kong, um, especially if you're talking about the idea of anomalous uh primates or, or relic hominoids whatever you want to call them uh bigfoot type creatures um and and so yeah it's not only this film but the fact that you know people at the time uh would have had a lot of opportunities to be exposed to this material um you know through these various uh prose adaptations right that were appearing in newspapers and all kinds of magazines for both adults and children uh etc um and and then the the other thing that I I included in the notes, which was that, um, so several years ago, uh, um, uh, stop motion historian uh, Mike Hankin, I believe, I don't want to get his name wrong because he was uh, a big help uh, in a lot of a lot of this research, but he um, he published uh, he he found and published the original. Uh, Edgar Wallace draft of of the King Kong uh, story outline and uh, it was originally published in the book Ray Harryhausen Masters of Magic um, which is a difficult volume to get a hold of nowadays it was published in 2008 but fortunately earlier this year because this is the 90th anniversary of King Kong um, so we've gotten a couple of really cool Kong related books that have come out and so earlier this year Um, electric dream house and uh the the great um horror uh anthologist uh stephen jones put out an edition of the wallace screenplay um again in, in this in this lovely book just called kong an original screenplay um which i i would highly recommend if it's still available but one of the things that's really interesting is so in the version that um uh, Wallace was working on, uh, the story is, is rather different because you have uh, Denim and and the crew coming back from an expedition where they've caught a bunch of uh, wild animals. It says two tigers, two lions, two jaguars, ten baboons. Um, and and Denham is kind of complaining that, you know, this still isn't enough, right? He needs something bigger, something more spectacular. And uh, and then they, they notice he notices some islands off in the distance. And he asks Captain Inglehorn, you know, uh, what what are those? I, I don't recognize those islands from the nautical charts. And so then Inglehorn responds, uh, my friend, not every piece of land in these seas appears on the charts. Denham, what do you mean by that? Inglehorn, just what I say. Um, it was near one of these islands that I saw uh what do you call it? A sea serpent. So um, and then uh, they proceed to have, you know, this this conversation about uh, sea serpents and sea monsters and how Inglehorn had sighted one of them. And, of course, you know, the island or islands that they're near, um, they're referred to as Vapor Island in, in Wallace's original treatment. But this is what will become Skull Island, um, and they're going to end up getting, you know— stranded on this island and then they're going to encounter kong and the dinosaurs and the rest of it but obviously the sea serpent thing is your first kind of hint that there's something uh you know well cryptozoological going on here so
0: Mm. you know i've I've probably said this before but i do feel like king kong is as you say like one one of the prime texts for the origins of of cryptozoology but it is it is one of the last great original lost worlds you know shortly before well, 1933, I suppose, uh, and I, I would count maybe Lost Horizon, which also comes out from, you know where, where Shangri-La comes from also in, in 1933. But, you know, after this Second World War happens and the world is explored, you know, every field, seem, seemingly every inch of the world is, is explored to a degree where it, it just becomes harder to convince people that there are still unexplored spaces to set your lost worlds in. And while the, the genre continues in comics and, and other places, it kind of starts heading towards juvenilia. You know, it starts to become a, a meme of kind of kid stories after this point, and I've always felt like Kong is one of the last great eras in which you could set a story where people might still believe this, even you know, as much of a fairy tale as it is. I think the fact that it's 1933 is is paramount to its sort of its its vibe, its its believability, its its you know, kind of fairy tale sort of realism such as it has. Um, just jumping forward or jumping backwards slightly in time before we we might say a little bit more about anomalous primates. But um, I just want to s- jump back in time slightly to 1928. So you have cited a short story here called The Ancient Horror by Hal Grant. This is I think we're in pulp territory here now. We're we're in the pulp magazines. And this you, you mentioned earlier a few stories about um you know, surviving plesiosaur-type animals in, at the beginning of the century, but this being 1928, it's a story about a about a surviving plesiosaur. We're getting a lot closer to 1933 and, and the beginning of the Loch Ness monster phenomenon, and I just wonder, uh, you know, the idea was already out there and it had been for a couple of decades, but just the fact that it's a lot closer to it has me wondering. And King Kong itself, obviously, is often cited as another potential inspiration that the the sauropod, the swamp dwelling sauropod in King Kong often, um, you know, mentioned as being a potential source for uh, the the sightings of the Loch Ness monster. Although uh, I think a lot of listeners will know Charles Paxton's article in in 14 Times from a few years ago, where he kind of quibbles with that. King Kong idea a little bit he just breaks down the timeline as to the original the the Spicer sighting and what was said when and how likely is it that the the, uh, the the Spicers actually saw King Kong before they made their initial sighting but uh yeah what what do you what can you tell me about the the ancient horror in 1928?
1: Yeah no I mean, you know, well yeah King Kong and, and Nessie yeah share a birthday if you trace the origins <laughs> of Loch Ness back to the the Spicer sighting, right? So it was actually, uh, 90 years ago, yesterday, we're recording this on, uh, the, the 23rd of, of July and the Spicers had their sighting on July 22nd. So yesterday was, was Nessie's birthday, um, (laughs) in, in a sense, but yeah. So, um, but yeah, so you, you definitely have stories, um, with this idea of, of a plesiosaur or other kind of creature, um, in a lake so what's fascinating about the ancient horror by hal grant um which is published in in a pulp magazine i believe it's astounding uh stories or astonishing stories i don't have that in front of me but it's one of those um and again has has a accompanying artwork by frank r paul who was a very popular uh, uh yes, pulp yes. artist <laughs> but um so the protagonist of this story is a big game hunter named rutherford um no, no first name He's just known as Rutherford. But what's, what's really interesting in this story is that it opens up, um, with Rutherford and uh, a friend of his, you know, again, kind of sitting around, they, they seem to be in some kind of like explorers club or this kind of thing. And, you know, they're, they're sort of smoking and, and reading the paper. And, you know, uh, so then Rutherford, you know, uh, holds up this article in the paper that's titled, uh, quote, prehistoric monster seen by hunters in Northern African swamp. um so yeah clearly a a reference to uh the then current sort of first waves of of mokalia uh sightings or what would become mokalia and so uh grant is using this as a jumping off point because you know rutherford is asking his his friend sitting across from him, he's like what do you think of this and his friend says oh it's probably a hoax like there's no way that that's true there's no dinosaurs in africa and rutherford says oh i i have an easy time believing there could be dinosaurs in Africa and he says oh well why is that and he's like well because i encountered one in america um and he starts talking about going on uh this vacation in this uh small uh mountain town i don't think the exact location is ever given uh from what i remember it's been a few years since i've read this story um but it, you know it might may have been you know closer up in this sort of uh new england area so perhaps near actually like Lake Champlain or that kind of general spot. But, you know, Rutherford, you know, talks about going on vacation in this little, you know, uh, mountain town community that was on the edge of a lake. Um, and, and, you know, the uh, resort owner there is this guy named Wilson. And it's a it's a perfectly, you know, kind of bucolic locale. But then what happens is while Rutherford is there, um, people are going out on the lake start disappearing. And uh, and there's eerie cries in the middle of the night and the tourists all get freaked out and leave. And and, um, Wilson goes to Rutherford and says, you know, you've got to help me He goes, I think there's something in the lake. You know, you're a big game hunter, you know, dangerous animals. Um, You know, you've got to help. This is going to ruin my livelihood. And so they decide to stake out the lake. And sure enough, they end up seeing this plesiosaur um, come up out of the lake. Uh, during the night. And Wilson has no idea what it is, but Rutherford explains to him that it's a quote, aquatic antique arising from the Mesozoic era from some uh, 500 million years ago when monsters and giant reptiles inhabited the earth and its waters, end quote. And then later on, Rutherford will conjecture that, um, you know, because there's, there's this question of, well, you know, what's it What's it doing here? And um, Rutherford finds out that there was an earthquake in the area, like a small one, not that long ago, and uh, and so he says he he tells Wilson he says quote um, probably this creature had been caught in some great caverns that were formed and unable to escape and had adapted itself uh, to this changed environment uh, end quote and so then when the earthquake happened it was released from from these caverns and came up and is now in Inside the lake. So again, we have this sort of allusion to a, a hollow earth idea similar to what we had in the slaying of the uh, plesiosaur. And also for that matter, if you, you go back um, even further, uh, you know, we have um, the, the story uh, uh Allen Curtis's The Monster of Lake Lemetri from 1899, which Yes, have done an Very strange on. story. <laughs> so incredibly surreal story, but again, these <laughs> same kinds of ideas of a of an elasmosaurus in a mountain lake that's apparently been freed through geological activity. Right. Um and that's that's a story in particular I have to point out real quick. You know, so so famed um Hovelman's uh you know disciple uh, the Irish cryptozoologist Peter Costello, in his book *In Search of Lake Monsters*, actually cites that story, uh, the the monster of Lake Lemaitre. And again, you know, doing the same sort of thing, saying, you know, well, here's a work of fiction, but I think this is what's actually going on, right, in in these lakes or close to it.
0: Well, so. that that business with the the sort of explain the sort of geological explanation of how the animals, how do these animals get into lakes where they really shouldn't be? I mean, that sort of stuff was cited seriously as an explanation for for Nessie, you know, over many decades. Oh, absolutely. And I've seen, you probably, I'm sure you've got in your list here the monster of Partridge Creek, which we skipped over, but we, we can only do so much. That's 1908. Right, right. That's a kind of a ceratosaurus monster in the Canadian Arctic. And I've seen that show up as supposedly a real story. You know, I suppose it's written as if it's real, but I don't I don't know that it was ever presented as anything other than fiction. But again, these things work their way into the supposedly real stories all the time.
1: Yeah. Carl Shooker cites that story as being possibly real in uh, his book In Search of Prehistoric Survivors from 1995. But, yes. Uh, my friend uh, John LeMay, who I mentioned before, uh, has done a series of books of about reports of dinosaurs on the American frontier and elsewhere and uh, enlisted my help uh, a few years ago in researching that story um which ended up appearing in the, the second volume of his series uh Cowboys and and Saurians uh, yeah volume 2 uh, ice age and um and so what me and John were able to show is that it's a absolutely a work of fiction it was originally published in french um in, in a french science fiction magazine uh, and then was later translated into english and published in the strand um but you know what's fascinating is that that story got around i mean a lot of people even at the time took it very seriously as being a, a true account even though by by all means it should be completely obvious that it's a work of science fiction but john and i tracked down all kinds of articles through newspaper uh, morgue websites and stuff that cite this story that talk about it that question you know will there be a follow-up expedition are people going to go look for this thing um and and it got all around the world I mean, we found articles in newspapers in japan so um wow. yeah so that story got a lot got a lot of play um well it's it's and, the yeah. same year
0: as as um hagenbach's book and same year yes. as, as last time to the dinosaur, you know, the it, it was going around that idea was going around clearly.
1: And and thing. I do have to I do have to throw out real quick, I won't go into uh detail because of time, but if people are a fan of the monster of Partridge Creek, which it does seem like quite a few people are, there is a two thousand and three short story called The Bear Eater by Paul Pence that almost nobody seems to know about. I think it's because it was published in uh, uh, the wrong, the wrong place. It seemed to get got published in like a cyberpunk anthology for some reason, even though it has nothing to do with that genre. It's a straight up work of crypto fiction. And it is basically, it could almost be a sequel or a remake to the monster of Partridge Creek. It's a great short story. So.
0: Great. I'll, I'll put links to that. That sounds fun. And I, I noticed you, a few of those last ones you mentioned as being like like gentlemen's club stories, which is a yeah. sub a subgenre I'm fond of. And I'm just going to quickly mention that I, I've read it stated that I don't think this makes sense chronologically, but I've read it stated that Lord, Lord Dunsany or Lord Dunsany, um, mm. you know, famous Anglo-Irish early 20th century weird fiction writer. Um, was is considered to be one of the originators of this. Now, he was writing those stories in the 20s, and, and we've just mentioned The Last Dragon from 1871 pretty much starts with that, you know, with that trope. But he wrote a lot of stories with a character called Jorkins from about 1925 on. And Jorkins is a, a whiskey-drinking old boy in a, in a London gentleman's club. And if you give him a whiskey, he'll tell you a story about his adventures in the, the woolly fringes of the empire. And one of them, I remember, was called... Uh, the tale of the Abu Lahiv and it's about a guy in the wilds of Africa just beyond where you know the, the white men go and he finds a, an animal if I remember it's, it's almost like a it's described as almost like a kangaroo type animal but it uses fire so it's the only animal that uses fire and it, he's he's it's it's very um self-consciously a tall tale you know the story isn't really supposed to be believable it's supposed and it's told to you secondhand by this character Jorgens but again he's even by that point, I suppose it's it's almost like satire a little bit, the idea that, you know, the old boy in the club tells you a story of seeing a mystery monster or a prehistoric monster at the fringes of the Empire.
1: Uh yeah, I have not read that. Yeah. I've I've read a little bit of Lord Dunsany, mostly uh, some of his his fantasy stuff, but yeah, I will have to look that up. That sounds great.
0: His so. his um county seat is up in or his his family seat is up in I think County Westmeath, and they have a castle there. And i I'm I'm I, I fancy taking a trip at some point. <laughs> Just hmm. um, so I think we'll start to wrap up, but I would like to um I, w- I want to go back to the anomalous primates for a bit, and you have a few more stories I'd like to hear more about in in the King Kong vein, and in in the as you say Kong is, is one of the prime um moments in the history of like you know weird gorillas or <laughs> weird ape ape men type creatures. You cite a story called The Cairn which is slightly earlier and then you have a few stories which are slightly later and one of them is Robert E. Howard. So let's let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah so um, so we have H.R. Wakefield's The Cairn uh, from 1929. Have you read this by any chance?
0: No this is one I have not. No I, I've done okay. a fair I... amount of the works we've talked about and I'm proud of myself but I haven't read this one.
1: I think, considering how much you like Benson's The Horror Horn, you would love this.
0: Yes, I think um, the horror
1: horn. <laughs> so, so Wakefield was a, a British ghost story writer in the tradition of like M. R. James and Algernon Blackwood, and um, uh, who who unfortunately did not become as famous as either of them. And it seems to be because, uh, interestingly enough, so you know he he published a lot of these stories and then you know uh, had a, had a little bit of acclaim, but then. Uh, you know, uh, passed away, and and actually August Derleth, right? So the famous promoter of of Lovecraft and and weird fiction writer himself, um, uh, contacted uh, Wakefield's widow shortly after he died and asked, um, you know, about getting the rights to his his stories and his correspondence and his manuscripts because he wanted to publish them through uh, Arkham House, and apparently uh, his uh, his widow told him. Uh, told Derleth Durle- that uh, Wakefield had burned all of his stuff before he died, so um, including apparently all the photos that he had of himself. So I'm not sure what that was about, but I think that probably you know set set him back in terms of of recognition. And so it's only been in in somewhat more recent years that he seems to have uh, gotten the, the recognition that he deserves as a great practitioner of the the British ghost story. But one of the stories that he wrote. Is this one the cairn, which is set in the the lake district in in northwest England actually, and you've got these two uh you know kind of uh, kind of i guess I get the impression they're supposed to be kind of you know upper upper class uh gentlemen they're Welland and seabright, no first names again, but they're friends, they're on holiday together and uh you know they've been they've been doing some some mountain climbing or or hill climbing, and so the story opens up with. Uh, you know, they're sitting in their, their inn, looking out the window, contemplating climbing um, Bruton Hill, which I have not been able to confirm if that's a real hill or not. Um, but uh, they, uh, you know, uh, the, Welland has has apparently like, you know, sprained his ankle uh, the previous day and it's not fully healed. So he's saying, you know, well, I'm going to have to skip out on this one, um, you know, but you go right ahead, Seabright, you climb uh, Broodin Hill, and uh, you know Seabright is like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow morning. It shouldn't take me, but like four hours. And you know, you've got a great view of of this hill from this window here in the lobby. You know, why don't you bring out the telescope that we packed, and you can watch me as I climb. You know, and he's like, yeah, that sounds you know like a, a great idea. And then you know they they are talking to uh, their landlord, and their landlord is saying um you know i i wouldn't climb bruden hill if i were you you know um you know it's, it's going to snow and uh they're like well i've climbed in snow before i i don't understand you know what the big deal is and he's like well you see there's a devil that lives on top of this hill and it only comes out when it snows and and again you know Uh, We've seen this before, you know, they dismiss this as a superstition of of the locals. And so then the next morning, um, you know, Seabright sets out to uh, climb the hill while Welland watches through the telescope. And uh, and this is, you know, this is an interesting story because um, we never get to know exactly what it is that uh, gets Seabright. Because, you know, unlike the horror horn or some other stories, there's no description of the monster. There is only the most vague and general suggestions. But the suggestion that you get is something that is very Yeti-like or very much like the, the ape creatures in the horror horn. Um, and, and so, you know, Wellen sees this play out watching it through uh, the telescope and is then alarmed and, you know, runs to go, you know, find the uh, the town constable and tell him, you know, I've just watched my friend be attacked by some creature. You know, we've got to go up there and save him. And the thing is, you know, there's this great scene where, where you know, Welland finds the, this constable out on the street and he's like, my friend Seabright, he was attacked. Oh, and he's like, oh, you know, where, where, you know, and. You know what street? And he's like, "No, it wasn't a street. He was on Bruden Hill, and the constable's just like, "I see and starts like walking away and And Welland's like, "Where are you going?" And he was like, "Well, I'm going to go tell the coffin maker to make a box for him. So <laughs> you know, and you you find out that there is like this it's sort of like this open conspiracy in this village that everybody knows, don't climb this hill when it snows because this monster's going to get you. And if you're an out of towner who's stupid enough to do this, well, then just go you know start taking measurements so
0: <laughs> that sounds amazing and given the yeah. the date that's 1929 i mean this this mm-hmm. could be like the horror horn this could be influenced by the mm-hmm. early early yeti stories on you know the 1921 everest expedition had the footprint story but it could also be as we talked about in the last episode it could be fairy euhemerism the idea of mysterious beings living in in remote parts of britain could be either or or both of those and tell me a little bit about robert e howard's roles in the house this is in
1: the mid-30s. Yeah, so I, I wanted to bring up Robert E Howard's Rogues in the House from, from 1934. This is one of the classic Conan stories. It it was served as part of the inspiration for um you know the second Schwarzenegger Conan movie. But this is one where Conan gets involved in this uh this story where or this this incident where this uh castle has been taken over by this monster called Thack, um, who uh, you know, has, has decided to kind of rebel against, uh, its masters. And, and so Conan has to go in and, and fight this creature. And I always see, see Thack in like comic books and other things when this story gets adapted as depicted as basically like a big ape, a big gorilla, but that is not what, um, uh, Robert E. Howard describes. So the actual quote here, when Conan asks uh, the guy whose whose palace this is, you know what a, what Thak is. Um, he says, "quote Some would call him an ape." but he is almost as different from a real ape as he is different from a real man. His people dwell far to the east in the mountains that fringe the eastern frontiers of Zamora. There are not many of them, but if they are not exterminated, I believe they will become human beings in perhaps a hundred thousand years. They are in the formative stage. They are neither apes as their remotest ancestors were, nor men as their remotest descendants may be. They dwell in the high crags of the well-nigh inaccessible mountains knowing nothing of fire or the making of shelter or garments or the use of weapons yet they have a language of a sort consisting mainly of grunts and clicks um so this is a yeti this is clearly a yeti amazing um and 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 there's a little bit that that whole idea of like you know they may become human again. There are shades of, of Benson's The Horror Horn, but also like anticipations of, of Nigel Neal's screenplay for The Abominable Snowman, right? Yes. Um, and you even have this, uh, you know, Conan uh, at the end of the story. You know, he defeats Thak in a, a fierce fight. You know, um, he he almost loses. You know, but he comes through by the skin of his teeth, um, and and you have this great part where uh, you know, it's describing he's, he's, he's killed him, he's, he's strangled him. And then we have, quote, uh, black, hairy, abhorrent, the monster lay, grotesque in the tatters of the scarlet robe, yet more human than bestial, even so, and possessed somehow of a vague and terrible pathos. Even the Sumerian sensed this, for he panted, I have slain a man tonight, not a beast. I will count him among the chiefs whose souls I have sent into the dark and my women will sing of him. End quote. So at the end, Conan is even like, this this was more human than animal. So he deserves a, a warrior's death. So
0: astonishing. Well, yeah. there there's a lot of topics we that we'll have to wait for another day just for time reasons. We we didn't touch on on, on Thunderbirds. These are things that could happen another day. Uh, we didn't really talk about merfolk, mer beings. Uh, we didn't really barely touch on Lovecraft and his connections with with cryptozoology, werewolves. It's a whole lot more. Um, I, and there's one thing that we. I'm just going to barely mention this because i know you have um, a talk coming up on this topic but we could have said a lot about the work of robert chambers who's obviously better known for the the king in yellow and and weird fiction but in 1904 he wrote a book which i'm currently making my way through uh, which is called search for, for the unknown and um this in many ways is uh, i don't want to say too much about it but it, it kind of sets the template for uh, you know monster hunters and cryptozoology as we know it post 1950s and it's astonishing to me to find it as fully formed as this in 1904. With, with, there are multiple stories in this volume about one character who works for a zoo in, in New York and he gets sent around the world looking for um, mysterious animals, animals that are thought to be extinct. Um, there are things in this book which are not, which are now absent from, from cryptozoology. There's a lot of humor, there's a lot of kind of Robert Chambers' other sort of romantic fiction writings seeps into this a lot. I, I find it actually generally very funny in a in a weird, stilted 19th, 19th century kind of way. But um, the most famous story out of it, of course, is the Harbour Master, which is about a kind of a, a, a fishman uh, creature of the from the Black Lagoon type type being. Um, but uh, I don't know if you want to say something quickly about that and about your your talk and where people can find out more about this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you've enjoyed any of this, um, and and you want to hear me talk more about cryptozoological fiction, I am going to be giving a talk on August thirtieth uh, for the Victor Wynn Museum and the Last Tuesday Society. It's an online talk. Um, so uh, there is, I believe it's uh, it's it's one of those deals where um, there is a, a slight uh, ticket price to get in. Um, uh, so. But it's not it's not particularly uh, expensive and yeah I'm going to be talking about the cryptozoological fiction of Robert W Chambers um, I think you did a, a wonderful summation right there you know Chambers today he's yeah he's best known for The King in Yellow he's known for being an influence on Lovecraft um, he was because of his romantic fiction uh, at one point the most popular writer in America he was a household wow. name um, everybody knew who he was and then you know there after after his death there was this sort of dramatic uh you know kind of uh, uh you know uh, cultural forgetting of him except for you know the fact that that lovecraft preserved a part of his his legacy because of his weird fiction work and um and this this included you know his cryptozoological work lovecraft was very influenced by this story the harbor master which is yes. a clear anticipation of both lovecraft's the shadow over innsmouth and perhaps even more striking, uh, yeah, Universal's *The Creature from the Black Lagoon*. So I'm going to be talking about this 1904, um, you know, sort of fix-up novel of of stories *In Search of the Unknown*. That, yeah, as as I say in my original essay, this lays out basically the whole idea of cryptozoology uh, very early on as a fully formed uh, set of ideas. Um, and so I'm going to be kind of my plan is to go through. Uh, each of these short stories and try to put them in a, a sort of broader context. So I'll be talking about like the Harbor master, and then what were people saying in both fiction and non-fiction about mer-beings at this time. The second story is called The Spirit of the North. And so I'm going to be talking about the idea of relic mammoths and so forth and so on for each story in this collection is the plan. So
0: Sounds amazing. Can't wait for that. And yeah, I, I think... He, the place of that book in the history of cryptozoology is, has been under under reported because like, wow, it's all there. One guy whose job it is basically is to go looking for these things. And in each story, he has a different adventure. You know, you've got what, you've got the X-Files right there. You've got Kolchak right there. You've got um, Bernard Heuvelmans right there and you've got Professor Challenger, you know? So I, I'm sure, I'm sure you're gonna have a lot to say about it. I'm going to do a quick read from the very end of the crypto fiction chapter. Uh, to wrap things up you wrote it is my contention that practitioners of cryptozoology have chosen to embrace what they see as a more entertaining alternative to conventional science rather than the hard and restrictive process um described by cohen cryptozoologists have opted for a version that is more romantic and exciting theirs is a version of science as imagined by authors of crypto fiction enacted by actual cryptozoologists as a lived practice these scientists are no longer bound to academic laboratories but can head off like modern day knights into unknown regions to slay the last real dragons. I quite like that.
1: Uh, well thank you. Yeah. You know that was yeah, that's that's you know, and and that again, you know, this this is this idea that, you know, this is not this is not an an issue of of confabulation, I I feel so much as you know, uh, a, a sort of a, a conscious choice about how one wants to experience the world and live in and live in the world um, and 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 see it. So um, and and so, yeah, you know, that's that's what you have. I feel going on here, uh, you know, with regards to um, you know cryptozoology um, and and the importance and the role that you know works of, of crypto fiction, whether it be you know short stories or novels or films or TV shows, um, you know, like the X-Files or other things play in that, so.
0: Great. I'm sure we could do a whole lot more, and, and we might someday. But for now, um, Justin, where can people find your work online, and what would you like people to know that you're up to?
1: Uh, so, um, aside from the the talk that I'll be giving on Chambers, um, I, guess, I guess the main other thing that I have coming up that people might be interested or, or, or want to look out for um, is you know I I do book reviews on a lot of uh, different uh, cryptozoological topics and 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 science topics and things for uh, the the website um, uh, Adventures in Poor Taste. Uh, my my current review that I'm working on that should be out at some point soon is actually going to be for the late cryptozoologist Mark uh, Hall's uh, posthumously published book on mer beings. So that's been a very interesting read so far. So I've got that review coming up. Uh, and then uh, if people want to find uh, me and more of my work, they can check out, uh, you know, my Academia EDU page. You just have to search Justin and Academia EDU. This essay, the crypto fiction one is on there, as well as um, a few of my, my other ones, including my ones dealing with cryptozoology in early America, um, and, and a couple of other pieces uh, that I've written. Um, and what else... Am i doing? i guess i also will mention i'm actually i am currently working uh with with two of your other guests uh so richard fallon and eddie gumont um on a uh article are they're working in an editorial capacity i'm writing it but i'm i'm currently in the process of editing an essay for publication that is going to deal with uh japanese crypto fiction so
0: astonishing great stuff okay I'll, I'll put links to everything in the notes as usual And Justin, it's it's always a pleasure and I always learn so much. Thank you very much for talking to us.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: And there you have it, folks. As always, when talking with Justin, I come away with a really incredible list of stories I want to read, weird fiction to check out, and a whole lot more books I need to get a hold of my my poor creaking bookshelves. You can probably hear them uh, creaking around me as I speak. Uh, one of the stories Justin recommended was called The Cairn by H.R. Wakefield. I would like to recommend the reading of that on a podcast called Encrypted E N C R Y P T E D Encrypted podcast. A really really fun and and relatively short entertaining read of that classic um weird tale and I think you won't be sorry taking in the story in that particular format. I'd also like to say thanks to the multiple people who pointed me in the direction of the BBC podcast just called Yeti. So numerous people sent this my way, knowing my interest in in cryptozoology, i am making my way through it i'm largely enjoying it it's a tiny little bit maybe simplistic for uh, experienced cryptozoologists. it's more like an entry point for people who don't have a, a tremendous knowledge of the subject however the the hosts do travel do a lot of travel to um remote places to try and get um kind of a fresh take on the story i have appreciated that i was listening to it at the beginning wondering whether this was in fact a kind of a scripted show it it has something of that quality to it um, and so i will would out the the hosts and um, they actually have a lot of pictures and videos on their instagram of their trip to they went to india and uh, myanmar and indeed to tibet as well so worth looking worth uh, worth checking out for the, for that reason alone even though the podcast is quite enjoyable um, Justin, after we recorded, sent me a, a, a great email saying that he wished we'd had time to talk about H.P. Lovecraft and the Loch Ness Monster. So Lovecraft um, did take note of uh, the sightings of the Loch Ness Monster that were happening in the early 1930s. Very interesting to get his uh, perspective on this. The old gent of Providence, of course, was famously sceptical on, on most real-life Fortian phenomena. We've, we've mentioned his scepticism uh, regarding UFOs before. Uh, And he's actually written letters about uh, what he thinks about the Loch Ness monster. And Justin sent me on a very, very funny one, which I'm actually not going to read out until the next episode. Because in a rare uh, example of me committing to something, (laughs) I usually don't commit to what my next episode is going to be in case I need to change my mind or circumstances change change it for me. Um, I am actually off to the shores of Loch Ness myself very soon. By the time you hear this hopefully so uh, i will probably read that funny hb lovecraft Loch Ness monster letter during that episode just for a bit of a laugh so until then folks you can check me out over on buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic to donate some of the brown stuff uh, you can say hi over at twitter or x as it's now seeming to be called where I'm at Strange Ireland or Instagram over at wide underscore Atlantic underscore weird. So, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening.
1: We are certain that Satanism exists, it's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was
0: this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.